This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asal. And you're listening to The Conversation. So how goes it? Pretty good. How about you? Doing all right. I, I feel pretty good about those other two interviews, and this time we're going to be heading off in a totally different direction. Yeah, those first two, I thought, uh, in a lot of ways, worked really well together as a way to kick this off. And now this is definitely going down the, the path of, well, lesser known things. I think it's really interesting. So once again, the name of the, the guy we're talking to tomorrow? We're talking to Peter Warren, and he's from the Nature Conservancy. Right. And he's... Um, He's been working with the Malpai Borderlands Group, and that's a coalition of sort of environmentalists and ranchers in southern Arizona who've come together to jointly manage a lot of grassland in a way that is pretty unprecedented. It's not common to have this sort of coalition, and it's been a surprise, I think, that they found so much common ground and that they've actually been remarkably effective at sort of meeting the goals of very different constituencies. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that, especially in the American Southwest, the environmental movement and ranchers have always been at loggerheads. So what are some of the, there are a lot of directions I think this conversation can go. You know, it seems like some of the natural ones we'll want to talk about are how on earth did these groups come together? If we're interested in the conversation, I'm really interested in like kind of the logistics of like, how did these guys make the conversation happen? Exactly. Because I think of all of the, uh, of all of the people in, in organizations we currently have lined up, these people are the closest to actually really having the conversation as we envision it. I mean, if the conversation is multiple very disparate groups sitting down and talking about the future, well, that's exactly what this is. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. I think figuring out how that happened is going to be incredibly valuable for, well, our version of, of the conversation as a whole. So something I think we need to think about now before I, I go in and make a total fool of myself, what's the connection to sort of the, the bigger philosophical idea about this? They're making the conversation work. We want to pursue that. Mm -hmm. You know, we see cultures that are threatened by economic changes sort of trying to negotiate that. Are there other big ideas we want to explore here? You know, as an environmentalist, uh, I'd assume that he's going to have more of a biocentric view of the world. The ranchers might have more of a anthropocentric view of the world. And maybe that's that's a lens that we should actually be thinking about to explore this. this exactly. It would be, through. I think, interesting to see how you how you reconcile those two differing points of reference. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where this goes. 
After our last conversation was very philosophical, I think this one's really going to bring us back to earth with a lot of tangible stuff about mm -hmm. how do we do this. I'll keep you posted and I'll be sending you some audio to listen to soon. Excellent. All right. Well, take care, sir. All right. And uh, have a good one. Catch you later. Bye. My personal background is as a biologist. I'm um, working here with the Nature Conservancy for 25 years. So, you know, substantial part of my background has been trying to understand changes, what happens to the natural communities of plants and animals over time in response to climate change and things like that. And actually, the, my first contact with the folks in the Malpai group was um, focusing on rare plants. Turns out there's a few very rare plants down there. One little cactus occurs only on one limestone hill on one ranch, listed endangered. So it's like the classic horror story for a rancher and an endangered species. You know, they're the only place in the world that has this endangered species on them. And so um, anyways, we went down there back beginning in 87 and helped put in some monitoring plots to kind of document the trajectory of those populations of cactus. Mm -hmm. and, and in the process, really were able to show that, you know, the management of the livestock operation on that ranch was had no effect on the outcome for the cactus. So you've got a, a so, background sort of thinking about biology and change. Right. That takes you down to southeastern Arizona, and yeah. you meet these ranchers. Right, exactly. How does the, the Malpai group start? They started because, you know, they're under a lot of pressure, um, since think of it as the outside world, um, the non-ranch community, for a couple of things. One is simply... Um, as these ranching families tend to grow over time, they have to make decisions about what to do with the ranch when there gets to be too many people for the ranch to support. And often the only solution they can come up with is to sell it and divide up the proceeds to satisfy kind of the family's shares in the ranch. The pressure to split that up is related to external pressure for housing developments and things like that. You know, the when ranches are sold and subdivided, the market is continental. The recent ranch subdivided there was sold in parcels to people from 20 different states. Literally, Hawaii to Florida, including British Columbia, were represented by the people that bought into that, the pieces of that ranch. Because the market is on the internet. And so that's the pressure that they're faced with. So, but that's purely economic. And so from the, our point, the Conservancy's point of view, is kind of, we want to see the land protected as as natural habitat for wildlife and that kind of thing. And so these, the, this kind of socioeconomic problem of these ranches being subdivided is also an ecological problem from the point of view of land connectivity for wildlife movement and, and functionality of watersheds and things like that. So although our ultimate goal is protecting biological diversity on the land and protecting the integrity of these natural communities, kind of the, the strategic way to get there is to try to prevent these ranches from being subdivided. And it turns out the issue that these ranchers were having, you know, they'd get together and talk and say, wow, you know, some, our neighbor over here sold out and that ranch got subdivided. And every time that happens, it puts pressure on the remaining ranchers who want to stay in ranching. And, you know, these are folks who might have been out there for four or five generations. You know, over 100 years, their family tradition is all about ranching. From the point of view of folks that have survived that long, it's, what it means is their, tradition, their family tradition is all about taking care of the land, keeping the grass healthy. And so they were seeing this as a process that was a, a challenging to issue for them as, as ranchers to kind of think about the future. You know, they're thinking about it from the point of view, how do we prevent this to protect ranching in this valley? Right. We're thinking about it, how do we prevent this to protect the biological wildlife resources of that valley? It turns out we're both trying to accomplish the same thing. But for? For different reasons. Very different For different, different perspectives on the same reason in some ways. Huh. 
Well, back to the kind of the question, how did they start? These, they were having these kind of informal get-togethers among neighboring ranches talking about this. And, and there's one particularly insightful guy, Drum Hadley, who was part of that group, owns one of the ranches. It was really Drum who said, you know, we really need to bring in some, some of these like, conservationists to help us think about what to do here because, you know. Was that like, how did that go over? I mean, and it that didn't go like... over at all. First time they brought this guy John Cook in, who's a nature conservancy, and at that time was trying to figure out what the conservancy would do with the Gray Ranch, which we owned at that time. This is like 1990. First time Drum took John to one of these kind of little community get-togethers, they didn't tell him where he was from. Just a friend. <laughs> Another piece of this little story back there, as far as our relationship, there's a ranch right in the bottom of the San Bernardino Valley. This ranch has a lot of natural waters, artesian springs on it that have, turns out, some endangered fish and things like that. So this property came up for sale back in the late 70s. The Nature Conservancy bought it. We turned around and gave it to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They made a refuge out of it to manage those fish. And in the process, the guys working with the Conservancy at that time just basically ignored or disrespected the, the kind of the involvement of any of the neighboring ranchers who'd been there all their lives. And so some of these folks who are now like our best partners and we're sending these letters to the Cochise County newspapers really just ripping into the Nature Conservancy, attacking the Conservancy for, you know, cutting the heart out of the valley, for, for destroying ranching, because it really was the best water. It was the historic center of the valley. And, and we took it out of ranching and gave it to the service for fish. So, you know, like there were some really passionate, hard feelings and that seems like that's a pretty common, pretty common theme thing. across the West, right? That's, it is. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That site actually represents kind of evolution in the conservancy's thinking from focusing on small places that have kind of high local value, like a spring with a lot of fish in it, um, and is buying that, trying to protect that spot, to thinking more broadly about what does it really mean to try to protect that spot. This is the bottom of the valley. It's surrounded by 200,000-acre watershed all of which feeds into that spot to sustain that water and the condition of the stream there. So that the long-term solution there is not just buying the spring. The long-term solution is protecting the whole watershed. Mm-hmm. And there's at least seven or eight different ranches, all of which own substantial amount of property in that watershed. So the, the real full big landscape solution is working with all those ranchers to come up with some kind of common solution. That's really interesting because that makes me think of, I mean... This conversation happened between ranchers and and conservationists there, and it seems like it went from the point of thinking about the small and local, kind of the specialized, to this bigger picture, holistic conversation. That's right. Where everyone understands that the ecosystem is really, as a unit, is something that needs to be thought about. Exactly. Which has really interesting parallels with sort of the structure of the project that I'm doing, you know, which is sort of like, how do you get people to be having a conversation about our holistic future. You know, right, right. we have people who will be talking about aspects of the economy or the environment right, or right. science, and it feels like those don't always overlap. So I think right, there's, right. I'm really interested in this because it's kind of like a cool parallel, almost a case study to think about bringing mm-hmm. people together to talk about a bigger system. What actually brought the people together? Oh, well, it was just the, their their concern about the future of ranching in that valley. I mean, that was what kind of got these conversations started. And But John was actually a really important catalyst in recognizing that these guys were all really motivated, really capable people, and having the skills to kind of organize that, into, you know, what our current accepted legal structure is for a nonprofit organization to do that kind of thing. Was it hard for both sides to sort of set aside how it, they'd viewed each other? It was. That was the first... 
you know, the traditional pattern up to that time was buying a piece of land and the solution would be giving it to the federal government to manage. In order to think about these bigger landscapes, though, it was clear the federal government couldn't just do it all. We had to have these collaborative approaches with multiple owners, you know, private and agency kind of land managers working together. We decided, the Conservancy decided, we were going to make this an example of private land conservation and kind of set the mark for um, kind of how do you stimulate this collaboration for um, big landscape conservation among kind of a diverse ownership of different philosophies in the landscape. Kind of how this ties in, I'm thinking about this as I've been thinking about your project here. What does that mean for thinking about the future and changes that we're experiencing? The ranchers in this case, you know, they have a fairly long tradition of kind of how they operate, what kind of life they lead, what kind of traditions they have. And it doesn't include a lot of the same priorities that some of the conservationists have. But it does include a sense, a very strong sense of being self-identified as an environmental manager of the condition of the grass, that kind of thing. And so if you can just kind of begin understanding how each other views those goals, which are very similar to ours, it, the challenge is taking what started out as a kind of a very strong antagonistic relationship and trying to direct that passion into shared goals mm -hmm. instead of directing it at each other. What are some of those, those shared goals? I guess for a group like the Nature Conservancy, the land has value in and of itself in a non, right. is it a non- anthropocentric way like the van yeah. the land just has value and the things yeah, all, all the species it. out there have value mm -hmm. and from the point of view of a rancher i suppose you'd say the land has value as it supports their livestock i mean making a living off the land is a key element of the value the land has and okay. that's true for people around the world and i think the angle which to me is really fascinating which malpai is a great case study for or something is that um these ranchers recognize they had this concern which they viewed it as a threat to their way of life. Mm -hmm. Their way of life, their family heritage tradition was being lost. So there's this kind of intimate link between this, you know, family tradition, community heritage and tradition, and the land that they're making a living on. And the Conservancy is incorporating that concept into almost everything we're doing now around the world. Is we have to work with the local community to find sustainable ways of using the land that are compatible with the, um, the, the biological diversity goals that we have for these natural landscapes. Okay. And so it, it, it means coming to an accommodation from both sides. And that's, that's fa So there's a real level of, of just pragmatism in yeah, this absolutely. sort of alliance between, I guess, biocentrism and anthropocentrism. But there's room for both. And it turns out there's, you know, you can have a really healthy grassland, which is, you know, feeding bison and deer and pronghorn and other wildlife. And there's enough productivity there for some cows also. You just have to pay attention and manage the system in a balanced way. Many of these rural communities, it turns out all around the world, you know, people who make their living from grazing livestock of some kind, whether it's, you know, think the Maasai in East Africa, the Serengeti, it's been a traditional herding culture there of people for thousands of years, side by side with, you know, the best known biggest congregations of mammals on earth. You know, same kind of thing in Mongolia, traditional herding culture big landscape, a lot of interesting wildlife and, and natural values. And every one of these local cultures is under pressure from the world at large, whether it's mineral development in Mongolia or pressure for agriculture in Tanzania. These herding communities are being pushed off of these traditional lands by other more intensive uses. Just like the, you know, the Malpai ranchers here, other ranchers all over the West, they're looking for ways to protect their 
traditional livelihoods and the traditional lands that go with those livelihoods. Hmm. And they need to look out to, um, to other constituencies to support their goals. And turns out the conservation world is obvious. I mean, it wasn't obvious at first, but it, it turns out we're one of the, the best and strongest partners for them to adopt to try to achieve their goal of protecting this ranching livelihood. That's true, you know, herders in Mongolia, we're partnering with some of them. It's true with the Maasai and Kenya, Tanzania, we're kind of collaborating with them to try to protect their traditional lands. Now, more than ever, we're aware of what people are doing everywhere else around the world. This is a challenge that people are facing, even in urban places, bombarded with this global information see, it makes it challenging, I think, to, um, to kind of identify what are the key elements of your traditions and your culture that you need to protect. And how do you protect that at the same time that you're bringing in engaging collaborators or engaging constituencies to help, help you achieve your goals who have very different cultural backgrounds than you do? And, and how do we choose what to keep? And right. And know that some things will be lost. Yeah, but so I'm not even sure where this is going. This is the point where it's, I'm not sure what the future holds. But I think this right. issue of, rec- of both identifying and been preserving local cultural traditions, mm-hmm. in, you know, like at the Malpai Group, the, our you know kind of Western ranching tradition. It's only a hundred year old tradition or so, 150 year old tradition. Right. So, so it's you not might an ask, old tradition. It's not an old tradition compared to the Maasai, but it turns out, you know, U.S. ranchers and Maasai have a lot in common. You know, we've had a couple of exchange visits between them, and it's like they spend their day, to a large extent, looking at the grass and thinking about water and where to move their cows to. Um, the guys in Mongolia think the same. If, if your job is managing livestock on the land in a way to sustain the productivity of that land, you think about things in a very similar way, it turns out. So it seems like we've, we've seen... This amazing conversation, unlikely allies mm-hmm. coming together, mm-hmm. very different sort of philosophical bases for their concerns in a way right. yeah. um, that have some common ground that's unexpected. Yeah. And it seems like it's been pretty successful. When you think about this as, as a model for any sort of conversations, I assume this, this seems like it would make you pretty optimistic. Do you think you can generally broker a, a conversation between very different sides? It turns out it's actually pretty difficult, I think. Because there's got to be a core number of people from that community who are willing to really try something new and different and to really keep at it. Because it, it's been successful. It's been almost 20 years. And there's been you know, ups and downs. And people get angry. And you know, sometimes you think, wow, are they going to come back or not? But they, but they do. And so keeping, just kind of keeping the momentum of this community organization is, I think, is actually pretty challenging. Simply because it takes extra work. Everybody involved has to do something more than they would have otherwise, and their lives are already full, just taking care of the ranch and family business. And not everybody wants to just try something which that is pretty new and different and maybe foreign. Sure. And I've been working with several different local ranching communities in Arizona. I think it ends up being a pretty difficult thing to sustain. Do you think that's something that can be sort of, you know, preemptively sparked that conversation mm-hmm. can happen, or is that something where to do all of this extra work, you really have to be sort of in in the jaws of desperation. Part of it, I think, is you have to legitimately be interested and curious about trying something new. Certainly some people might come to a process like this because they really need some kind of financial assistance to keep the ranch together, and um, selling a conservation easement is one way to do that. But the longer run, and I think the more important thing is there's, there's got to be a core 
group of community members who are willing to kind of take a leadership role to try something that, that not everybody trusts because, you know, there's, even though the Malapai has been going 20 years, after 20 years, there's still people in that community who do not trust what's going on because the conservancy is involved. So that's the challenge. So if we scale this model up to sort of a conversation about the future, um, I guess before, before I quite make that jump, um, something I've asked a lot of the people I've talked to is, do you think that this is, this is a moment where we should be having a conversation about sort of the global future, that kind of holistic, the ranch mm-hmm. land scaled up to everything we're dealing with? I think it's possible. I mean, it is kind of happening in a way because countries all over the world are engaged you know, much more extensively than they ever have been before. If you're kind of uncertain about your own values, your own cultural heritage, and you know what's important about it, all this other stuff can be viewed as very threatening. You know, somebody else, if, if they have a very strong identity that they're comfortable with, if you are uncomfortable with yours, that could be very threatening. Mm-hmm. And so it forces you to then kind of identify, self-identify how you feel about your own values relative to all these others. And I think if you feel comfortable, you could clearly kind of draw your boundaries where you're going to protect and at the same time, feel really comfortable about everybody else out there and, and their values, just kind of appreciate what they have. You know, the fact that human diversity is worth protecting somehow. I think a lot of the kind of global dissension we're seeing is that some of these local communities exposed to all of this are seeing it as fundamentally threatening. And so they're reacting to it in really violent ways. It's a huge issue around the world right now is how local cultures react to this kind of process of being inundated with information about all the other cultures in the world. Do you view it as threatening or not? Do you think that is the issue of our time? It could be, because it's, I think it's an issue that threatens kind of fragmentation of the country, especially like in a democracy where everybody has to kind of accommodate each other in some process, it's a tendency to kind of push for some kind of homogeneity across, you know, through education, that kind of thing. But I, I think more and more, these, these little local communities are surviving. And how do you accommodate all that cultural diversity is, is really one of the challenges we're facing right now. I think it's like we're in election season that is kind of highlighting it because folks are so polarized about how do you, yeah how do we come together as a country to deal with like significant national shared issues. The fragmentation is like paralyzing us. And that's something that also kind of sparked wanting to do this project, you know, in, in a little sense, like thinking about U.S. politics and wondering like how do we... How do we sort of get past that? How do we shake hands like the people in the Malpai group did? I don't know how. It takes leadership that is really willing to take a risk, you know, to try something different. Mm-hmm. And the problem is our, our political leadership, you take a risk, you're booted out of office. Yeah. And so, you're, you know, you, you aren't really able to, to act. So it feels like we kind of need people with that the same foresight that mm-hmm. that we've seen in these, like maybe in something like Malpai, people yeah. who can sort of take a little bit of that risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope this, the structure isn't rigged in such a way that that is impossible. Are, are you optimistic mm-hmm. about the future? Um, I don't. I guess I am. Yeah, I'm kind of inherently optimistic, but what do you but think? I don't is... have any answers though. Yeah. And, um, do you I, think? I, you oh. know, I think one of the neatest things in a way that kind of makes it possible to be optimistic is that um. When you see folks like the exchanges we've had, you know, with Malpai Group, exchanges with, you know, Maasai herders in Africa, exchanges with some of these guys from Mongolia, you know, they have so much in common. And they can talk about so many things that they understand 
really well because their lives are based on the same kind of fundamentals of ecological productivity and livestock, radically different cultural backgrounds, languages, but a similar worldview in many ways. And so if, that, if that's possible, then um, it seems like we should be able to come to some agreement here. I don't know, one of the difficult things is it seems like people that tend to be more similar disagree more violently about the differences they have, which is ironic and um, kind of nonsensical, but it seems like it's true, you know? I kind of wonder, like, are we putting our heads in the sand? We use these issues as a way to not think about some of these really, because the changes that it seems like we're dealing with are, are very big and involve a lot of I mean, soul-searching is a cheap term, but kind of that sort of, you really have to reflect. I mean, like you were saying with thinking about what are your cultural values that you want to preserve. And it seems like a lot of it comes down to sort of, we need to be having a conversation about what is good. Mm -hmm. That's where I think with Malpai, it's really, it's neat to see that both groups can go, okay, we're coming to this from very sort of different backgrounds, but we have a sense of good. Maybe it's lucky that it's in common, but maybe it can also be made to be in common. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that's sort of the fundamental, like the base language that that almost needs to come to the surface. Yeah, I think maybe it does. I think it, that's. I mean, you've really hit the nail on the head as far as what makes it possible to have a strong collaboration and like Malpai is that agreeing on some shared goals, which you know the, these goals defined as something like keeping the landscape whole, keeping the grass healthy. You know, which are the good goal you're setting for yourselves out there. I mean, there's clearly a lot of things that each of us disagree about with each other, but we're but for the purposes of Malpai, we're all focused on what we agree on, which is these shared goals for the land. And so it's, for whatever reason, our political process has pushed us to focus on the things we disagree about, not the things we agree on. But in order to actually move ahead with these strong partnerships, you've got to focus on what you agree on. And for a politician, to show agreement with someone who's from the other side, so to speak, um, is a sign of weakness, which immediately causes you to lose ground with your, your core. As long as compromise, which is, you know, critical, it's absolutely necessary for kind of democratic process to succeed, as long as compromise is viewed as weakness, our system's not going to work. Greetings. How's it going, sir? <laughs> it's going all right. I feel like we should have a, a bizarre different greeting every time we, we start or close an episode. I like the sound of that. <laughs> um. So I talked to Peter, and yes. you got a chance to listen to it? I did, I did. That was, uh, god damn, we're three for three right now. That was awesome. <laughs> it's the first really practical, this was the conversation. That was the conversation that they are having right now and have been having for the last 20 years. You know, we talk about a lot of these sort of big picture things, and mm -hmm. I think we're going to talk about a lot more of big picture things about how do you bring people together. But I liked Peter's story about how these are people who, there's just some guy who's the first guy to basically extend his hand to the people on the other side and right. say, look, we can work together. We have some common goals. Yeah. Something uh, that, that Peter said that really sort of struck me was the idea of disagreement stemming from being too similar. Right. And I think you were dead on. I mean, you were talking about the, the political parties in, in the U.S. and how really they're just two faces of the same coin. Um, and that, oh, thank God for the subjectivity disclaimer. Uh-huh. Um, but what I thought was interesting is that in some ways, other sides of what he was talking about sort of, sort of contradict what he was saying. I think it's really interesting that let's take the Maasai and, the, and these Malpai ranchers. 
though on the surface they seem just completely different, they've realized they have incredible amounts uh, in common. I wonder how to, to reconcile those two thoughts. This group and this group have, you know, when you look down deep inside, they have a ton in common, and that's why they've been able to work together. And then you look at the Democrats and the Republicans who seem to be the same thing to, well, me, and yet they have a complete inability to work together. I think this is going to be something for us to uh, to also carry forward into other interviews, the kind of split between like, well, I mean, this is something you deal with all the time as as an ontologist or whatever the hell your job is. But like, what are the relevant differences in the case of the, the Maasai or the Mongolians or the guys ranching down in Cochise County? They have a fundamental economic similarity that allows them to kind of relate over the cultural differences. So if we go over to the political side whatever party or affiliation you have, like we're all part of this modern economy. So we're very similar in this in in most ways. And our differences are sort of like the little cultural pieces of cilantro on the dish, you know, the garnishes, the small stuff. Which I mean, admittedly, those things matter too. But it is it's it's smaller. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a it's a theme worth exploring as we as we continue moving on. The part that really caught me, and you could I think you can hear this on the tape is the bit where Peter talks about that you just need to start by finding what you have in common. Mm-hmm. Like, that's huge. <laughs> it is. It's, it's sad in some ways that that seems so huge, isn't it? Yeah. Somehow it seems like there must have been some former golden era when people kind of just knew that. But I don't think that's the rule. You know, it's interesting. I think... Uh... One of the reasons it's become so hard to say that, uh-huh, bear with me here. It actually sort of pertains to something else that that struck me. You asked Peter Warren if he was uh, an optimist, mm-hmm. and he seemed really hesitant to say so, to say yes. And then when he finally did, he said, "But I don't know the answers. You know, I believe that things will be good, but I don't know how yet." And I wonder if being an optimist without feeling like you know the answers comes across in modern culture as naivete or as, you know, in, in, in the modern sort of irony based world, if uh, being an optimist just isn't not cool, cool's the wrong word, but if being an optimist seems silly in the same way that I wonder if saying, well, all we have to do is reach across and find these commonalities can seem in our irony based world silly. Right. It almost has sort of like a childishly simple ring to it. Right. Um, Despite the fact that here's an organization that has existed for 20 years and sort of at least anecdotally suggests, oh, hey, if you just reach across and find your uh, commonalities, you can get things done. If you've got the dispositions that will do that. Right. Um, And this also makes me think of of the conversation with Dr. Moore, where he was talking about um, the idea of complexity. Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, it's so difficult to be anything more than a specialist. And I think that makes it hard also to say that you're an optimist. Because you can really own a couple of subfields. Like, you can know them inside and out. Oh, interesting. But to know enough to say that you're really an optimist about the future (laughs) involves a huge knowledge that by saying you're an optimist, you're sort of inviting people who are specialists in other areas to say, well, you're a fool about this and this and this. You don't know about these things. How dare you be an optimist? Like, our default is 
pessimism when it comes to thinking about the future. God, that's a scary thought. The burden of proof is on the optimist to have a sort of systemic knowledge of, of everything so they can say, this is why I'm optimistic. And maybe that's... Maybe that's a false read. Maybe it's actually really easy to go, oh, the future's going to be great, and then just kind of, like, sign off. But maybe in the circles we're talking to, that's different. Is that scary to you? That the default assumption is pessimism? Yeah. So it is, sort of. But as a pessimist, I think maybe that's kind of reassuring. (laughs) I would be more worried if the default assumption was optimism. Because for me, I think if your default assumption is pessimism, then you're going to be you're going to be constantly working to make the world better. And if your default assumption is optimism, you're going to be more inclined to go with the status quo. And so for the kind of people we want in this project who are shakers, you know, people who are going to agitate, I wonder if we're going to find more pessimists than optimists because you have to have that to get you out trying to reform. I I'm intrigued by the the idea that uh, if the default is pessimism, you have to strive to improve things. I I feel in many ways that pessimism can just lead to fatalism. That's probably true too. Um, I mean, I, I certainly actually I, in in many ways personally, I've always sort of been intrigued by the Norse end of the world. Oh, you're thinking like Norse myths. Norse myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's predestined. What is going to happen at the end of the world? Evil wins. But in order to be an honorable person, you have to fight on the side of good. Knowing <laughs> that you're going to lose. No wonder no one's into that religion anymore. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> on a slightly more serious note, I'm thinking the optimism-pessimism thing isn't a binary, right? And it, I think, Oh, absolutely Or not. maybe it is a binary, but it's a, it's a fluctuating binary. I'm thinking of all these interviews I've done on other radio projects as I've ridden around the country talking to people. Mm-hmm. And I've often been really surprised at the strange way that optimism and pessimism come in a package together. And maybe there is no logical way of sort of reconciling which one is ascendant. I would go into many interviews and ask someone about the hardest decision they'd ever made or what they were most excited about. And often I would get a story which seemed on the surface to be incredibly difficult, to have a sad lesson. And then the person would end almost invariably by saying, but I am happy about the future. And I could never square that. And I don't know how many of them could rationally square it, Mm -hmm. but I think they were being totally sincere. And maybe that's just part of what we are as biological creatures, pessimistic about the present and kind of... Optimistic about the future. Yeah, just a little bit bit starry-eyed, even when it's not socially cool. Like, I think you have to be... I think you have to be a little bit optimistic about the future. Uh, I mean... (laughs) If you're not, there's only a few options available to you. <laughs> Ragnarok and uh, and the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally together. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, this might be a good time to plug my new vodka. <laughs> I think it's time for us to, to end the conversation and just go into selling vodka to pessimists. This Friday, we've got Colin Kammerer, who's one of the founding minds of neuroeconomics. Um, yes. And so we'll be changing paces yet again. That seems like a common thread here. Although, what's again, what's interesting is that how many of the same themes just keep coming up. And as we realize more themes in the future, we'll realize 
that we missed them earlier, but they were totally there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be very fun to map this thing visually. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what Colin Kammerer has to say. And uh, I'll talk to you a day or two before that to uh, give our little intro. Cool. All right. Well, I will talk to you uh, in a couple days then. Sounds good. Take care. And uh, okay. I'll, uh, I'll, we'll talk soon. That was Peter Warren, recorded May 4th, 2012, at the Nature Conservancy's office in Tucson, Arizona. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at, at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul. <laughs>